Good morning and welcome back to Rising. Happy Wednesday. Thank you for tuning in to our beloved show. Beloved by some, by many, I by, hope. By millions. Millions. Probably. Millions across the globe. <laughs> Let's get right into it. Well, Robbie, James Biden, the president's brother is set to appear before the House Oversight Committee behind closed doors today. This the first of two high-profile testimonies the panel will hear this month as part of its impeachment inquiry into President Biden. This comes just days after Politico published a bombshell investigation finding James Biden invoked his brother's name in negotiations with a rural healthcare company, AmeriCorps Health, which would later collapse into bankruptcy, an issue oversight Republicans are vowing to broach during today's testimony. After James testifies today, Hunter Biden is scheduled to appear before the Oversight Committee Republicans in a week. Republicans accuse James, Joe, and Hunter of executing a pay-for-play bribery scheme. Hmm. Meanwhile, over on the Biden campaign trail, the president received another sobering approval rating of just 39 percent from voters in a new Harris X survey. Fifty six percent of respondents saying they disapprove of the president's performance so far. Former President Trump, on the other hand, leading Biden by a whopping nine points in that same poll with a commanding lead of 47 percent to 38 percent. Meanwhile, in the battleground state of Pennsylvania, Trump leads there as well, even in hypothetical matchups against Vice President Kamala Harris and California Governor Gavin Newsom. Now, we will not forget to mention that in Pennsylvania, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is making a serious play with 8% of the vote in a hypothetical three-way matchup with Trump and with Biden. Now, President Biden probably gave his aides a small heart attack when he appeared to trip on his way up the steps of Air Force One yesterday. Uh, that's always something to be worried about when it happens. President Trump, on the other hand, faring better in the polls than in the courtroom. Attorney General of New York Letitia James is threatening to seize the former president's real estate from him should he fail to fork up the $355 million that they fined him for committing fraud. Yeah. An incredible slate of stories that really says something about the political landscape in the United States of America. To the extent that Democrats were hoping to have a slam dunk uh, framing of Trump as the fraudulent sort of um, cheating Republican on one side and Biden as kind of righteous and a man of clean hands and integrity on the other, it is complicated somewhat by the fact that Republicans decided to keep pushing this impeachment issue, now implicating not just his son but his brother in this argument that there is a play-to-play -play scheme. Now, the problem Republicans keep having is that there is so far, no, they're there. They've been pushing this uh, argument with respect to Hunter Biden for quite some time now. But the fact of Hunter Biden or James Biden holding out Joe Biden's name as they try to exploit that relationship or allegedly exploit that relationship is not enough to actually implicate Joe Biden as having been partic a participant in that scheme. And that's the red, that's the the smoking gun that they still haven't found. Sure. Um, frankly, I think the uh, the kind of Biden corruption stuff is taking a backseat yeah. recently to um, even more palpable concerns or more easily 
proven concerns I about agree. his age. He's providing more evidence every day that people are right to worry about his advanced age and whether it's affecting his ability to be president. Um, whereas the the corruption stuff was a lot. Again, it was focused around Hunter, and there were very legitimate questions there. And then also the way it was initially suppressed on social media has everyone very skeptical and you know waiting for the other um, shoe to drop, that kind of thing. Um, and, and also the strong claims, the strong denials we got from President Biden in the White House about knowledge of his son's um, business activity was subsequently contradicted. So a lot of the, uh, the kind of initial, there's nothing to see here that the, the media put up this wall, that did collapse a lot. So people maybe are expecting even more to come out. But we haven't gotten to that point yet, and maybe we won't. But there is a lot of bad news for Biden anyway, because I think it's the age question, maybe some other things, is, is killing him in the polls all over the country, poll after poll. Yeah. Now, in Pennsylvania, we see that swapping him out for um, one of those other candidates wouldn't actually make any difference. For a long time, Kamala Harris polled even more poorly than Joe Biden. That was one of the strongest reasons for keeping Joe Biden, like his, his most obvious successor, is less popular than he was. That flipped um, a couple months back, although I think some polls still show her with less favor, but it, you know, it goes yeah. back and forth. I mean, I think the fundamental issue is here, it's, it's an entirely personality-driven um, yeah. campaign, regardless of what issue you want to pick up on. Whether it's who is more cognitively fit or physically robust, that has absolutely nothing to do with their policy agenda. Whether it's who's more corrupt or who's fraudulent, that has absolutely nothing to do with their policy agenda. And for all that Democrats historically resisted the idea of being sucked into personality politics and, you know, derided and dismissed Republicans as being overly obsessed with the personality of Donald Trump, they have offered nothing in the alternative in support of Joe Biden other than that he's a good guy. And frankly, they've won that argument. A lot of Americans think that Biden is a good guy, but a good guy who's just not fit to serve. But what they've done is they left this enormous gaping hole in terms of what the perspective, affirmative messaging, affirmative plan is for Democrats to improve people's lives. Meanwhile, as much as Donald Trump has been dogged by these lawsuits and finally has been very unsuccessful with respect to civil lawsuits, he is out there. The Republicans are out there talking about immigration. They're out there talking about inflation. And I would argue that they are also not meeting the moment in terms of what Americans need them to deliver as they're still struggling mightily on economic issues and have these other kinds of um, important existential concerns. There is seemingly more there than you're getting from Democrats, who seem to be seemingly focused when it comes to policy on sending larger and larger foreign aid packages mm -hmm. to support unpopular wars. And are making their case against Donald Trump all about these legal issues that, you know, the merits of any of the specific cases aside, do not seem to be affecting him in yeah. the polls whatsoever. You can no longer say it's not just among the Republican base. Clearly, okay, you could say the Republican base doesn't believe in any of these things. They think this is a, a witch hunt, and actually it's made him more popular because they felt a need to rally around him sure. as he's besieged by all these legal actions. But maybe general election would be different. But by now, it's not showing up in any of the polling of, of, uh, of Democrats in it. I mean, Democrats already don't like Trump, but if you're, you know, gettable, moderate, independent, swing voter people, they're not, they don't seem phased by what Donald Trump is, is facing right. very much at all. If they are, it's not showing up in the polls. Well, that's an important point, that I think that this is not a battle for 
um, attracting attracting independent voters or swing voters as much as this is going to be a battle that's won or lost on the stay-at-home voters. Yeah. Are there going to be a bunch of Democrats who otherwise would have come out and hold, held their nose and vote for Joe Biden the way they did back in 2020 who aren't going to do so because they're so disgusted by Gaza? Are there going to be Republicans who otherwise would have come out and voted for Joe, uh, Donald Trump, but they are not going to because they are disgusted by the fact that he might be convicted in one of these um, election fraud trials that may or may not come to a resolution before Election Day. Polls suggest that a significant volume of Republican voters say they would not vote for Donald Trump if he were actually convicted of having done election interference in 2020. Now, you can read those polls with a grain of salt. Who knows how much that will actually bear out? But that is, seems to be the game here. Who can discourage what side can discourage more of the other side's voters from coming out? And that is a really dark and bleak place yeah. for America to be in. And it's, and it's not wrong. There are good reasons to be discouraged about sure. both candidates, even if you are a Democrat, to be discouraged about your own party's candidate. If you are a Republican, to be discouraged about your party's candidate. Um, again, a, a lot of these criticisms being leveled at them are entirely fair. Yep. Donald Trump, um, you know, I, I, I question the merit of, of some of these um, cases against him, in, including what he just went through in, in New York. Um, but there is little question that he behaved in a reprehensible way with respect to the last election, in a way that harmed harmed his own re-election that was just tactically unsound, that was never going to work, and just and humiliated Republicans, Republicans and actually yeah. caused a bunch of his supporters to land themselves in jail. Mm. Um, and uh, and and so so that's that's true. That was all idiotic and with a different candidate. I mean, Republicans are successful all the time in blue states even when they're just a little bit more disciplined about who the candidate would be. Mm -hmm. um, but our primary voters right now have not shown any any aptitude for thinking about general electability, but that gamble might pay off because right now Donald Trump looks perfectly electable somehow after everything. Yeah. Um, this is this is a, a high watermark for him right now for to be re-elected. Re it's, it's hard to imagine, but we're sticking with it. We'll continue this coverage and more after this. Stay tuned. United States vetoed an Arab-backed measure by the U.N. Security Council calling for Israel to initiate a ceasefire. To start, here's footage of America vetoing that resolution. Will those in favor of the draft resolution contained in document S-2024-173 please raise their hand? Those against? Abstentions? The result of the voting is as follows. 13 votes in favor, one vote against, one abstention. The draft resolution has not been adopted owing to the negative vote of a permanent member of the council. UN Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield justified her decision to kill the measure by arguing it would not achieve the goal of peace in the region and could instead exacerbate issues. Let's take a look. Colleagues, over the past few weeks, we have made incredibly clear that the resolution before the council would not achieve the goal of a sustainable peace and may in fact run counter to it. Proceeding with a vote today was wishful and irresponsible. 
And so while we cannot support a resolution that would put sensitive negotiations in jeopardy, we look forward to engaging on a text that we believe will address so many of the concerns we all share, a text that can and should be adopted by the Council. American concerns surrounded the failure of the veto measure to ensure the return of Israeli hostages by Hamas. Concerns, Thomas Greenfield said, were noted in a U.S. draft resolution. The veto comes as Gazans struggle to find food as the war drags on. Palestinian government authorities have warned that nearly a third of the population, around 700,000 people, are at risk of death by starvation if aid is not allowed into the country soon. Um, there was a recent report uh, along those lines that the uh, food deliveries into northern Gaza are now stopped uh, because of kind of lawlessness and violence that has broken out around the scarcity. Uh, they are concerned about the safety of the food trucks um, because people are so desperate at this juncture. And although it's been framed, I know the AP framed this story as an Arab-backed resolution, perhaps to imply that somehow this is a pro-Hamas uh, resolution at the UN or somehow against the interest of the broad world, as you could see there from the vote tally, that there was overwhelming support for this resolution that once again was vetoed only because the United States, as a permanent Security Council member, has the power to override the rest of the world's um, desires in this forum. And so it really is increasingly indisputable, and it has been for some time, but increasingly indisputable the extent to which America and Israel stands apart from the rest of the world and believing that the assault by Israel on Gaza should continue. And the argument that it is somehow the fate of hostages that is the concern here is really blown up by the fact that, of course, the last deal offered up by Hamas was a complete and total exchange of hostages in return for a ceasefire. And Israel has said out of hand that it will not ever accept a ceasefire agreement. It wants to have the latitude to continue to bomb Gaza until every last member of Hamas is gone, a military goal that people across the political uh, spectrum have said is an impossible one. So in effect, there is no resolution that Israel will accept, regardless of whether or not it's imperiling the lives of hostages. Well, the deal they offered some weeks ago did not necessitate every, every last member of Hamas dying, but its top leadership, I think seven officials, going into surrendering and going into exile. That's what they offered. No, but They're it wasn't. not going to accept a ceasefire with a terrorist group that is committed to continuing attacks on Israel. Is Israel's deal, Israel's plan there, also didn't have a ceasefire component. It did not have a permanent ceasefire. They have never, in none of their deals that they've offered up are in exchange for a permanent ceasefire. So you can imagine a world where if they said, we'll, we'll stop forever if you give up 7, 10, 100, whatever it is of the top Hamas officers. Sounds so that, great to me. But that wasn't actually the deal that Israel put forward. They are have at no point accepted the idea of anything that's like a permanent ceasefire because they don't the, the belief is they're, they're acting in a way that suggests that the goal isn't, in fact, targeting Hamas. And this has been the ongoing debate. Are their actions well tailored to establishing peace, getting back hostages, eliminating Hamas? Or does it seem like the goal here, as you are, again, dredging up cemeteries, destroying every university, th uh, blowing up uh, residents, setting charges and doing planned demolitions of residential blocks that have already been cleared, um, destroying hospitals and the like, is that about actually clearing out Gaza, as we know, 
Uh, Egypt has been be begun building a pendon enclosure, a ghetto, if you will, around uh, just outside of the Rafah Gate in Egypt. There have been innumerable articulated desires to push the Gazan population out of Gaza, perhaps permanently. Um, there are are acting toward the, the infrastructure, civilian infrastructure in Gaza, uh, in a way that one would do if you wanted people to never want to return again because there was nothing to return to. And of course, as we covered, and I covered on a radar a couple of weeks ago, there was a settler conference where, what, 14, 15 members of um, Israeli government were there joining in in a plan, an articulated plan, to set up developments in Gaza, Israeli developments, resettle Gaza, build um, Israeli cities in Gaza with new names, and basically colonize Gaza for Israeli purposes and permanently push out the population. And the question is whether or not with these UN vetoes and American aid, we are facilitating that ethnic cleansing process. Well, I would say Hamas is facilitating it as well by holding on. If they, if they again, surrender, take the exile, and that will stall the momentum to do what you think Israel's true motivation is. Again, I don't think we should support any of that effort. I wouldn't support what they're doing currently. I think not sending more foreign aid to both Israel and Ukraine is in the best interest of American national security and is in line with what taxpayers actually want. So I don't think we should willingly assist whatever they're doing, but uh, that we, the U.S. is not prepared to allow other countries, African countries, to order um, Israel to stand down without any uh, assurance or reason to think that Hamas would also stand down. And, and the, the mismatch here that Hamas, as not technically a, a, a government to the same to, in the way that Israel is and is not you know, bound by these kinds of constraints, is a, is a big problem in terms of working out these negotiations. But they're not Israel's not going to stand down until Hamas is defeated to some reasonable degree. Right, but a second ago you said Israel won't stand down until Hamas will stand down. Hamas has said we will stand down and we'll fully exchange these hostages and we can end this conflict. No, Israel no, no. is Hamas the one has that to says surrender. Right. Well, meanwhile, the Times of Israel I'm has released a new report. I'm just saying this is going to continue until that happens. The Times of Israel has released a new report finding the U.S.'s $14 billion aid package for Israel crafted with an eye, is crafted with an eye toward a multi-front war, not just a war in Gaza. Apparently, huge portions of aid are targeted toward, quote, replenishing weapons stockpiles, as well as helping Israel prepare for a potential future fight against Hezbollah, the Lebanese, Lebanese uh, group. Yeah, this is... This is a fascinating report. The Times of Israel doesn't frame this necessarily as a negative thing, but they're pointing out that unlike Ukraine, which is clamoring for more money and lobbying hard for more aid, saying that our, our, our ability to resist uh, Russia is entirely contingent on U.S. support or largely contingent on U.S. support, Israel isn't making that same pitch. Um, and the, this, this piece argues that Israel is actually very well weapons, well-supported, well-funded, and has the ability to obviously devastate the population of Gaza, um, and as it has been doing. But the aid package that is being proposed, the $14 billion of aid, which is three times our normal annual allotment to Israel, which also obviously receives more aid than anybody else in the world from the United States of America, even under normal circumstances, would likely be used to allow Israel to continue this multi-front war. So again, when America is saying, we we taking this double line of we don't approve of what Israel is doing in Gaza, but we need to support its right to defend itself. Can it still be characterized as Israel defending itself when it's now using 
explicitly now using U.S. aid or very likely to use U.S. aid to start an offensive war against other parties and other countries. Right. Something the American people clearly don't want, yeah. um, especially if they're paying for it. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Nikki Haley just refuses to quit. The former South Carolina governor announced yesterday that she isn't planning on dropping out of the race for the GOP nomination, even if she loses South Carolina, her home state. When the country's future is on the line, you don't drop out. You keep fighting. Haley also began to cry during her speech over the absence of her husband, Michael, who is currently deployed. Haley's rival for the nomination and current frontrunner, former President Donald Trump, has come under fire in recent weeks for seemingly attacking Haley's husband. Here's Haley responding to that. I wish Michael was here today. And I wish our children. And I could see him tonight, but we can't. He's serving on the other side of the world, where conflict is the norm, where terrorists hide among the innocent, where Iran's terrorist proxies are now attacking American troops. Haley seems to be the only one who believes that her campaign has a chance. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott argued that Haley should call it quits on her presidential run and saying she needs to realize this race is, in fact, over. Hmm. Okay, so a couple of things. Because we are in this weird zombie primary, everyone has a legitimate argument that either because of Joe Biden's mental acuity or because of Donald Trump's legal troubles that it's worth it to stay in no matter how badly you're getting licked, even in your own state, right? And so while I understand the argument that she's fighting an uphill battle and that it's sad or desperate or whatever it, the optics are of her losing her home state, I, I get it. I get it from a strategic perspective. There's still a window there of opportunity for her if something does happen to Donald Trump. And as long as she is able to fund a campaign, as long as there are people willing to throw money at this in the hopes that she's there to pick up the pieces if Donald Trump falls apart, it's a legitimate strategy, no? I mean... It's legitimate, but it's sort of deceptive because she's never going to win under any normal normal circumstance sure. based in the voting. She could only potentially be the nominee if Trump is forced from the ballot for various reasons that would um, that would destabilize our country, frankly. So it's hard to even contemplate. But I guess look, she can stay in it if she wants. Um, she's not, you know, she's not doesn't have any momentum behind her at this point. Um, of course, the you know criticisms that Donald Trump has leveled against her about her husband are unseemly and totally par for the course for Trump. Remember when he the things he said about Ted Cruz's wife, I believe, I do. that was um, disgusting and made absolutely no difference whatsoever. Right. And also gold star families. And uh, if I were John McCain, I wouldn't have gotten caught. This isn't just a talking no. about someone's spouse issue. This is also impugning our troops and, and that level of it. Yeah. So all, all of it's combined. But it doesn't matter. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm saying it hasn't made much of a difference yeah. in terms of his <laughs> levels of support. There's something, that's why they call him Teflon Don. How much do you think, I've seen people make this, the argument I'm about to make. How much do you think that media figures saying that this stuff doesn't matter to Trump supporters helps to insulate Trump supporters against the criticism that they are being deeply hypocritical when they don't care about something like 
Donald Trump impugning the valor of soldiers when a few short years ago that would have been a death knell to any Republican candidate. And that those were the kind of criticisms they made of Democrats, swift boating, blah, 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 not real patriots. Where's your lapel pin, uh, Obama? Well, I don't know, really know that it's the media's job to explain to the voters what they ought to care about. Uh, it's more for us to listen say... to what the voters do care about and comment on it, I guess. Yeah, but I, I do think there's a way that you're that one can create the a reality. I mean, I don't know. I think that there probably are Republicans that don't love that Donald Trump does stuff like that, right? It's not that they don't care that he does stuff like that, but that they just prefer right. they they prioritize enough other positive things about him or things they perceive Well, there's a whole media him. narrative that that actually they actually love that about him. Sure, that's I'm what sure they want. Do. Of course they but are. But again, sure. we're we're talking in really broad right. um, sweeps about a population that has a lot of uh, mm -hmm. diversity of interest within it. And I don't know. I I am watching Nikki Haley um, cry in that clip. I'm reflecting on other moments when female politicians and male politicians have cried and how they have been received. Yeah. Um, there was a moment where Barack Obama shed a tear, I think, over one of the mass shootings. And some people thought it was a beautiful moment. Uh, a lot of Republicans said that it was a demonstration of weakness. Um, I remember, I believe Hillary Clinton shed a tear at one point, and there was very little support from her uh, for Republicans on that. And I, I, I suspect that many people will say uh, she's trying to, you know, weaponize tears and not be especially supportive for her in this moment. I actually found it weirdly sort of sincere, uh, you know, and um, I think that she's good when she seems humanized and normal. We don't have a lot of that going on in politics right now, frankly. For sure, um, but probably there's a segment of people watching her, including within the Republican Party, who certainly feel, I feel sympathy for her being apart from her husband because he's bravely serving his country overseas. But we have to keep in mind, you know, we have, we're picking the next president and what their policies are going to be and what their ideology is. And Nikki Haley's ideology is the most um, hawkish, the most for deploying, sending more American tax dollars and potentially its military might to more corners of the world. That is a position she, that she holds that is furthest in that direction, frankly, of like anyone plausibly okay. seeking I hear that. And right what's now. Donald Trump's position on funding Israel? Yeah, I have no idea. Right. Because he sidesteps it and then gets a complete and total pass for being vague in interviews when in all likelihood his record suggests he is going to have absolutely no disruption to the funding streams to Israel or have really any difference of opinion when it comes to funding that country in right. particular. Now, there is well, an argument to be made about Ukraine. He has differences of opinion with Nikki Haley, though. And yet, these are not getting fleshed out because at the end of the day, Donald Trump has to be yeah. responsible for the fact that he has not been willing to submit himself to a debate. And he has been unwilling to submit himself to anything akin to a rigorous interview, frankly. Yeah, I, in, no, in disagree. no disagree. No um, disagree. Laura Ingram uh, interviewed him the other night, and... Um, and I, I, I wish he'd been pressed much, much more strenuously on how the foreign policy would differ from Nikki Haley and from Joe Biden. That's the question on everyone's mind right, right now. The world is, is, there's conflicts are popping up all over the place. There's tremendous Republican dissatisfaction with, uh, with continued funding for, at least for Ukraine. I think among the base, there's probably some for Israel as well. You don't see that manifested in our actual political figures. Um, but... I, I, no disagreement with, from, with you that Trump has avoided that kind of scrutiny, and it's really a shame because uh, we would like to know. We ought to know. And, and that's, that's how yeah. this has become. But that's a, no defense of what Nikki Haley says. No, but which this I is how it's become a personality debate. If, if I say 
If I say Nikki Haley came off as sympathetic, let's say, subjectively, mm -hmm. came off as sympathetic in that clip, then someone else says, oh, but she wants to vote for a war. Who cares? Donald Trump hasn't said whether or not he wants to vote for it or not. So, you know, I, oh. I'm, I'm, I'm responding to what we know. What we know about, it, it, there's, there's a weird dynamic that's being created where the people who are showing up and campaigning and articulating what, they, what their vision of the world is, even as I aggressively disagree with it, get more flack than the people who are running away from cameras, dodging debates, only sitting down with their best friends who are undermining their own journalistic credibility by throwing him nothing but softball questions. And when I then say, okay, let's play the personality game, she seems like a, she has a nice personality, suddenly I can't even, I mean, well, in this one I, clip, like I, let's not overstate how much I think that she comes <laughs> off well. well she's but a politician, like, but. But you know, then, then suddenly it's, well, no, we can't even acknowledge that because she has at least had the integrity to say, this is what my ideas are for foreign policy. And Donald Trump is benefiting from being in a lockbox of unknowingness. It, 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 it starts to feel kind of absurd. I'll ding them both. There well, are I'll, I'm, I'll ding them both too, but I'm, I'm going to ding Nikki Haley for. She gets it worse because she showed up. I don't think she gets because it she, worse. she isn't hiding the ball with respect to her foreign policy. She gets it worse position. in what way? From from who? I mean, the mainstream media criticizes Trump more than her. No, from I'm talking about us right now. Oh, the context from our of dynamic. this conversation. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. I, that that doesn't sit right with me. And at, at the end of the day, like if if you want to be able, if Donald Trump wants to have the benefit of saying, this is how I've distinguished myself from Nikki Haley. He has to do the work of distinguishing himself from Nikki Haley. I don't think that. I, I want to be really careful that nothing that I say provides him benefit of the doubt that he frankly has not earned. And he is not someone who is struggling to get in front of the media. He's not someone who's struggling to get a platform. He's not Dean Phillips. He's not Marion Williamson. He's not Cornell West. He's not someone who cannot be heard. Every, even though he's not on Twitter, every, every other truth oh, well. social becomes a national um, event. So the fact that he has not, up until this point, made a point of distinguishing what his foreign policy would be with respect from, uh, from what uh, Donald Trump's, uh, sorry, from what Joe Biden's is, is a very strong indication to me that there isn't much there to distinguish. Look, I appreciate that Nikki Haley does tell you exactly what she thinks. I just don't happen to like what she says. I don't appreciate that Donald Trump is incredibly vague on policy details, but uh, and we should hear more from him. And the friendly media outlets that he does talk to should press him harder. That's their obligation. It would be to the benefit of Republicans and the general uh, electorate to understand what he's actually going to do about these issues. So I, I, I don't disagree, but I, 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 I'm not giving Nikki Haley all that many points for, I, some points for honesty, I guess, but it's not what I'm looking for in foreign policy is not really what you're looking for, and it's not what a lot of Republicans. No, but what I am looking for. for is someone who is at least willing to be confronted by the American public. And to be clear, the part that I find sympathetic is a woman missing her husband, a partner missing their spouse. Well, I'm not. not wait a minute. Yeah. Not, not. I'm not. I don't find the oh he's over there fighting some more in Africa to be sympathetic at all. I just want to clarify that from my own um, perspective. Yeah. More rising right after this. Fallout continues from Tucker Carlson's visit to Russia and subsequent five-star review on TripAdvisor. Late-night comedians took pot shots at the conservative commentator, including The Daily Show's Jon Stewart, who accused Carlson of failing to understand the darker side of the Russian state. Let's listen. Because the difference between our urinal caked chaotic subways and your candelabra beautiful subways is the literal price of freedom. 
But the goal that Carlson and his ilk are pushing is that there's really no difference between our systems. In fact, theirs might be a little bit better. Mm, Chris Cuomo from our sister channel, News Nation, commented on this segment, arguing that the very same Democrats who were upset with Stewart last week for criticizing Biden were now cheering at his segment making fun of Tucker Carlson. Cuomo posted, funny and safe, Stewart going at Biden and Dems got him way less resonance and more sheet than he is used to. This will be widely shared by the same who came at him a week ago. Got to pick a side if you want support. That's the game. Mm. Meanwhile, Tucker joined the Blazes' Glenn Beck to defend himself against accusations by critics, including former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, that he's a, quote, tool of the Kremlin. Tucker told Beck, Boris Johnson calls me a tool of the Kremlin or something, so I put in a request for an interview with Boris Johnson. Finally, one of his advisors gets back to me and says he will talk to you, but it's going to cost you a million dollars. He wants a million dollars. Dollars. Wow, big if true. Um, but I, I do think that uh, Cuomo has a point here that obviously John Stewart gets glowing praise when he stays in really safe subjects, i.e., talking about how horrible Putin and Russia is, and that everybody, like people like Tucker Carlson, who I, I don't want to go too far because I do think that I don't, I obviously don't have identity of interest with uh, Tucker Carlson politically. But outside of Tucker, anybody who was interested in talking about any of the broader context for the invasion of Ukraine, whether or not the West also reneged on its side of the deal in terms of uh, pledging not to expand NATO and the like, anyone who wants to point to any of those sorts of historical facts, inclusive of Tucker Carlson, are labeled Putin puppets, regardless of whether or not that's a true claim. Sure. Moreover, I think that uh, the segment is especially problematic because the very thing, and I said this on our show when we covered the Tucker segment initially, the very thing that Jon Stewart is making fun of here, he says the price of our freedom is the difference between a nice subway and a bad subway, is completely antithetical to the more soft socialist, democratic socialist values he purports to adopt in other kind of circumstances. The Moscow subway was built under a communist uh, uh, system in which there was a lot of pride in demonstrating that good things could be for the people as well, that you could make a beautiful space for public use and not just um, keep all of the riches and the glory and the well-designed spaces for the moneyed elites. And so then to take that core principle, which in and of itself is a good one, and something that we should be proud of in the United States of America, right? When we have Grand Central Station, when we have some of the few good public works that haven't been torn down from the golden era of public works and investment in our own public infrastructure, we say those are, those are a good thing. We don't say, oh my gosh, uh, Putin somehow made the subways nice and that we should somehow celebrate the fact that we have, what, Pizza Rat in right. the New York subway system? Yeah, I don't, under, I don't agree with Jon Stewart at all here, although I'm probably coming at it from a different angle than you are. Yeah, having terrible public transportation is not the price of freedom. It is public transportation. It's government run. It should be run um, efficiently well, and effectively. Right. Like, like there's nothing freedom-y about it. It's, it's, it's the public service. And expecting, um, expecting money that is appropriated from the taxpayers to be spent on services that are nice and safe and benefit them is nothing. The freedom part is not, a, there's no freedom in that. You have to pay your taxes and we want them spent well to develop nice public uh, transportation infrastructure that a lot of other countries, frankly, even a lot of poorer countries have than us. When I was in um, Italy in the fall, again, you do, it's a, it is a poorer country than the U.S. Um, there, there's a lot less economic opportunity. There's a lot of uh, 
a lot of ways in which it is not as nice a place to live as the US, although it has a lot of great history and things to visit. But I found the public transportation system, frankly, cleaner and nicer and, and easier to use than the public transportation system here. So I'm not surprised that Tucker had that experience. I think he had to watch. I should have watched out more for getting, you know, for getting having blinders on. He's, you know, he's only being shown what they're showing him in Moscow, which is like the wealthiest city in Russia anyway. I was, you know, I was looking up some statistics. It is still the case that most Russians live in greater poverty than most people in the U.S. Which is not to say everything's perfect in the U.S. and sure, we shouldn't do any work, but we do have to, you know. Be realistic and tell the truth that the average American home size is larger, that there's we have a larger percentage of homes with indoor plumbing than Russia, that food costs there actually the food costs less, but people pay more of their income toward buying food in Russia. So let's not let let's certainly celebrate the good that they've been able to accomplish. And I'm all for Tucker, um, you know, calling into question some of these you know, narratives about the war with Ukraine and how vital it is that Ukraine win back every inch of territory. Um, but, but you know, let's not let's be a little bit more <laughs> careful. Yeah, I mean, I just my frustration it. is mostly that the drive to appeal to a liberal audience has caused yeah. him to stumble in this odd and predictable way and undermine his own values. In the 1930s and 40s, when there was across the world a, a bigger commitment in one's own public infrastructure and less income inequality, where there were active communist and socialist movements that pressured our own government to compromise with labor protections, the social safety net, where we got all of the incredibly popular programs that are hanging on by a thread today, like Medicare and Social Security and the like in the, in the, um, in, uh, the following years, are all because there were much more radical movements that were frankly asking for more. And there was a bigger expectation that CEOs would not be as indifferent to the broader social implications of their profit. The kind of profit is king mentality that has emerged in the 80s and after was not, in fact, the prevailing instinct of the day. And that's why we see so many of our public works projects as well that are labeled Carnegie and all of these great, great, but oil, you know, wealthy oil barons and the like who felt like to buy public buy-in, to be able to be as rich as they were when so many people were so poor, that they had to very publicly give back in these sorts of ways. And there was this idea that there was a push and pull that was happening here. And so it, I, you can never imagine John Stewart saying something that is arguably true, like, wow, a billionaire oligarch named Jackie Kennedy Onassis swooped in and built Grand Central Terminal and made it so ornate and so beautiful, and that's why there's no freedom in America. I mean, there is a critique there about why there is a Kennedy legacy and why, there, why it is that our presidents all seem to have the same names over and over and over again, and why it is that one, one woman's dream to have a beautiful train station has more impacting preserving a historical train station that a municipality can. There's some real criticism there, but you would never catch John Stewart making the same kind of criticism of Tucker and Moscow about their train stations being beautiful as you very well could make about an American train station that was saved from demolition only because some extremely wealthy woman stepped in and said, hey, this is pretty, let's keep it that way. Yeah, and I think people um don't, don't understand the extent to which there is just this gross mismanagement that maybe occurs in other countries and in other countries' governments, but 
I remember reading about a, I think it was for the New York subway system a few years ago, they brought in a transportation expert, uh, I believe European, who had helped remodel um, the systems there and had had a lot of success. They brought, they hired him, they brought him in, and it was just, it was impossible to implement because you had to get so many regional authorities and this authorities and this authority, and you couldn't like do the paperwork that it would allow the kind of transformative change that would make our public infrastructure better. We're, we're I think handicapping that's a, that's our- That's another good point, and you're not gonna like what my solution is to that. I mean, it is very- Mine is to privatize it. That's not your solution. But no, that's, the problem is that it was privatized. So the reason why, for example, the New York subway system is so Byzantine is because there were a number of different private manufacturers that were building the system. That's why you have so, so much um, overlap and du duplicity, uh, du duplicativeness within various lines that long, run alongside each other from much of the same tracks of the city, that they were actively competing with each other for passengers along the same lines to and, fro the same to and from the same places. And when you see updates to the New York City um, system that happens like on this line but not that line, they were able to get bigger cars on this line but not that line, it's because there wasn't uniformity between the choices that were being made in the design and construction of various lines that were being owned by various people. Now they've come all under the same ownership, obviously in the MTA, but they're still dealing with untangling that. And now there's all these miles of tracks that some of the some of the overlap is good, right? You like that, you know, there's mm -hmm. different ways to get to different parts in the city, but it is in nowhere near the most efficient version of a system that would be designed if it were kind of done via city urban municipal planning as opposed to various capitalists trying to compete with each other to design to design the network. Well, I'm going to have to do more research to be able to respond to that. Look, look into it, and I also encourage a visit to the New York City Transit Museum, which is very fun and informative. The New York subway system, for all its faults, still better in my book than the D.C. subway system, which is a little bit cleaner and way worse in every other It is way. cleaner, but it doesn't take you. No one takes you where you need to go like the New York City subway yeah. system. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. If you haven't had your fill of the discourse around the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, now there is a new angle to talk about. That's right, the January 6th pipe bomb. The FBI is claiming J6 could have gotten even more explosive after the agency discovered a pipe bomb allegedly left at the Republican National Committee headquarters on January 5th. But new evidence suggests that the FBI may have lied. New reporting from Public details how a security analyst has come forward with a report showing that the FBI is misrepresenting the location of the alleged bomb. Hmm. The FBI map displays the device's location near the southern corner of the Capitol Hill Club. But the source says the device was closer to the opposite side of the building. Public noted that several additional inconsistencies with this pipe bomb story, including whether the bomb could have even gone off on January 6th, given the bomb had a 60-minute timer on it. Joining us now to break down this story for us is founder of Public Substack, investigative journalist Michael Schellenberger. Michael Schellenberger. Berger, so glad to have you with us to explain this story, which is a very important one, obviously given the rhetoric around January 6th, the way it is you know, described in mainstream media, and not, not wrongly as a very dark day where, um, where people attack the Capitol. Many of them have subsequently been arrested and facing long um, prison sentences. But get into this aspect of the story, the pipe bomb allegation. Sure. Well, this is, uh, I, will, I will say up front that in my view, the evidence now suggests very strongly that there is a cover-up going on about mm -hmm. what really happened and that the FBI and the Secret Service are involved in that cover-up. And the reason I feel so strongly about that, there's multiple reasons. Start with the first big reason. 
all of the Secret Service agent texts from January 6th have been allegedly deleted. Um, Washington Post, to its credit, did a very good report on this last year where they interviewed experts and just said how completely implausible it would be that all of these texts have been deleted and are not retrievable. That's number one. Number two, uh, the, the pipe bombs themselves, the FBI, the, the so-called pipe bombs, the FBI itself said would, were set on January 5th, set to go off on January 6th. In fact, they had a 60-minute timer on them, which would have made it impossible to have them set on the 5th to go off on the 6th. And in fact, the Washington field office director, when he was interviewed by Congressman Massey um, in, a, in an interview that has now been made public, agreed that the pipe bombs could not have gone off on January 6th. So the initial assessment was wrong. I'll give you a third example. As soon as they discovered uh, the, the, per, the person who discovered, supposedly discovered, the supposed bomb uh, outside the Republican National uh, Committee headquarters, um, this person worked for an FBI contractor at the time. Uh, she has not returned any, any requests for interviews, mm. is an extremely suspicious person. Uh, the organization she worked for was called FirstNet, also had the head of the Department of Homeland Security on the board. Uh, this is an extremely suspicious uh, scenario. There's so many, basically nothing adds up about what happened. Mm -hmm. She claimed that, uh, that she overheard a police officer saying after they saw the bomb, get to the DNC, to the Democratic National Committee headquarters, to check for another bomb. It's not clear why that would have been the instinct at all from anybody. One might have thought that a bomb, if it was near the Republican National Headquarters, meant other bombings on Republicans. Then to suggest it was, a, it was going to be at the DNC is very strange. So I'll just stop there. But I mean, this is a very strange case. I find it, we, everything about it, nothing adds up. Congress is looking into it. I think there's a lot more questions that we have to ask. So are you alleging then that you don't think there was a pipe bomb at all? Or when you reference the fact that the text messages have all been deleted from, was it Secret Service Secret members? Secret Service. That there was, that this was a, a plant by our own government. We don't know. Um, and we don't know if these were active bombs. The FBI claims that the bombs were viable, but there's no evidence the bombs were viable because the FBI destroyed the alleged bombs. So we don't know. The 60-minute timer is extremely suspicious. Um, in particular, then, the linkage to January 6th, What's going on there? I mean, it appears to us as though this is part of some sort of a disinformation effort. Mm -hmm. I don't know who planted those bombs. We're, I'm not even confident that, the, that we can trust that the bombs were planted when they said they were planted, that we know who planted them. We did, we did two stories on this. The one that came out most recently describes how the FBI's own map erroneously locates where the RNC bomb, alleged bomb, was. It wasn't in that place. It was actually closer to the Capitol Hill Club. And when you look at the photograph of it, it was actually nowhere near where it could have caused harm to the Republican National Committee headquarters. It was near a brick wall. It was closer to the Capitol Hill Club, one of many discrepancies in this mm. case. Well, what about someone who says, okay, if, fair enough to all that, um, this was a very poorly thought out, poorly executed, uh, like the attack on the Capitol itself, right, which did not, if, if premeditated, was not, I, I don't think it was, it was a spontaneous riot based on what was going on that didn't actually have a you know plan to occupy the Capitol from a militarily successful point of view. So similarly, 
whoever did this you know, did not you know, actually know how to set a device to go off a day later, um, that kind of thing. But doesn't, doesn't mean that it didn't happen, just that it was not a well-thought-out, well-executed, violent plan or conspiracy. Totally great question. Very well could be that situation. But just keep in mind, and this is the part we haven't got to yet, uh, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris was at the Democratic National Committee headquarters when the alleged pipe bomb was discovered. Mm -hmm. The reaction to the bomb, by the way, in both situations, first from Carlin Younger, the person who discovered it outside the RNC, was very relaxed. She, mm -hmm. she said she sort of leaned in to get a closer look. Doesn't seem like an intuitive reaction to something you think is a bomb. At the DNC, a similarly relaxed reaction to it. The bomb, if the bomb had been there when Kamala Harris arrived, then it's a huge scandal that the Secret Service failed to detect it. We know that there were bomb-sniffing dogs that were clearing the area. The bomb was allegedly in view. The photograph that they released, the FBI released of the bomb, you can see it in view near a park bench. So that means, if the, if the official story is correct, then it means that the Secret Service missed a potential bomb that almost killed the mm -hmm. vice president-elect. What's more, if you're the vice president-elect and you know that you were almost killed by a bomb on January 6th, why would you never have mentioned that to anyone? If you're an ambitious politician and you were almost killed by apparent, allegedly one of your political enemies, I, you would have made a huge deal of it. Instead, she never said anything about it, and we didn't even find out that she was there until several months later. Right, but that cuts both ways, right? That's what I'm not quite understanding about what the potential implications of this are. If this is a story where potentially, in order to exaggerate the seriousness of 1-6, the government, Biden, people interested in supporting Biden within the FBI or one of these other three-letter agencies, plant a bomb to make it look like this riot, which some, many people think was a false flag in the first place, was even more significant and more dangerous. Why is it that, frankly, I haven't even heard about the existence of this bomb until reading your story in preparation of this conversation? What is the point of weaponizing the potential catastrophe of this bomb going off and causing more destruction if you haven't actually weaponized it. Well, it was, there was a significant amount of publicity about the alleged pipe bombs at the time. What was kept from the public was that the vice president was at the DNC on January 6th. I don't know the reason why they didn't make a big deal of it. One possibility is that her arrival at the DNC that day was not scheduled, and she was not scheduled to be there. And, and it could be, if this is indeed a cover-up or part of some disinformation campaign, that wires get crossed, that people weren't informed of this, that she ended up showing up at the DNC after this, this plot to put a bomb or a fake bomb in place had already been hatched. And that was why then she did not make a big deal of it, why it had to come out in court cases. They had been reporting in the courts. What happened is they had been alleging that the vice president had been at the Capitol on January 6th. It only came out several months later in court cases that she was, in fact, at the DNC. And people had to piece together the fact that that was also the time that there was a alleged to your, pipe To your bomb. point, Brianna, I do remember reading many news articles um, that are you know, trying to insist on the gravity of January 6th right after that listed the pipe bomb in addition to you know, like zip ties and things being found to suggest uh, a premeditation or a, a more seriousness about what happened or that it was planned ahead of time. So I do remember seeing that. I remember zip ties. Media. I got to say, I don't remember pipe bombs, but I that could just be me. Um, but again, 
we have had nonstop January 6th hearings. January 6th has yeah. been such a part of the argument for in favor of Joe Biden's uh, campaign that we have to save democracy. And so I'm, I'm just trying to find the Occam's razor of it all. It does seem actually very likely to me, for example, that threats to a president or vice president or member of Congress are very serious. There are always concerns about copycatting. I don't think that you would necessarily want to advertise how close you might have come to successfully planting a bomb at a place where the vice president was that wasn't caught in a sufficiently timely manner. Could, it, could that be a possible reason why there were some of these inconsistencies? And I, and I do want to say also, I think that the evidence about the Secret Service text being erased and all of that is a lot more suspicious than some of the other points that you're making about the um, non-disclosure of, of Kamala Harris, for instance. Just keep in mind how much publicity there has been about some cocaine found at the White House and the president's dog biting a Secret Service agent. But this I remember was, those, those, those stories were covered a great deal. They're yeah. not ultimately super significant, I, I would argue, right. as compared to the potential assassination of a vice president-elect. Exactly. In other words, the potential assassination of the vice president-elect on January 6th should have been this huge story, regardless of whether or not the vice president made a big deal of it. Maybe she chose not to make a big deal of it. But we're talking about a serious breach of Secret Service protocols. Now, we know, in fact, the Secret Service had swept the area. They had used bomb-sniffing dogs. So how did they miss that bomb? Yeah. If there truly was a bomb there, there's only two possibilities. Either the bomb wasn't there when they, when they swept the area, or the Secret Service missed a bomb that nearly killed the vice president, either of which should be a major national scandal with major headlines. So we did see the publicity around the bomb scare. We didn't see the publicity around the fact that Kamala Harris was there in the official congressional investigation. They buried it in a footnote. It's almost as though there was something going on and it went wrong. Perhaps the vice president wasn't meant to go to the DNC that day and it was a last minute uh, decision and then they sort of buried it in the rest of the investigation. Mm. More questions than answers, I grant you. Very interesting. Michael Schellenberger, thank you so much for joining us today in studio. Always happy to have you. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. Even some Democrats are now openly admitting that the concerns about President Joe Biden's age have validity. Per Politico, newly elected New York Congressman Tom Suozzi dryly referenced the elephant in the Oval Office by saying, quote, the bottom line is he's old. Meanwhile, Congresswoman Katie Porter planted the seeds of term limiting older elected officials, telling Politico, quote, we're having that conversation and that debate about the Supreme Court. And I think it's hypocritical for us to not be thinking about having it, given we have some of the same long-term representation that we have. Mm. Our next guest read the tea leaves long before mainstream media caught on. A year ago, in an article titled Six More Years, the American conservative Kurt Mills wrote, Fair or not, many Americans harbor doubts about the validity of Biden's election and, most seriously, his medal for the job. Joining us now is executive director of the American conservative Kurt Mills. Welcome to Rising. Thanks for having me. All right. So you were willing to say out loud what not many people were willing to say back then, although I do always want to shout out the fact uh, that two of the 2020 uh, candidates, uh, Julian Castro and Cory Booker, both did bring up Biden's age on the debate stage and after and seemed to never recover uh, in the eyes of the Democratic elected for, for doing so. So I don't know if it was that people were unable or unwilling to or they just didn't want to suffer the consequences with the Democratic Party machine for 
pointing out the obvious. But I want to give you the floor to talk about what you think about the fact that this has all now come out into the open after all this time. Yeah, so I think a few things are happening here. Uh, first, I actually think the Republicans, to a certain extent, cried wolf in 2020 by raising his age, which has distracted from the decline that I think is now more perceptible uh, in office. So the Biden of 2020 is actually somewhat underrated uh, compared to what the Republican messaging was, and it sounds just the same. Meanwhile, the Democrats have sort of drunk their own Kool-Aid and pretended there's not a problem. I think additionally, um, there is some uh, fear on the Democratic side, uh, which is obviously the more politically correct party, uh, from offending a, a pretty quickly aging country. Hmm. So we are at this point where a lot of people are wondering whether Joe Biden could be successfully replaced as the Democratic candidate. He would obviously need to step aside. Um, Ezra Klein openly speculating about this at a contested convention uh, kind of scenario. Um, what do you make of, of this kind of speculation uh, that he might not actually be the candidate? I think it's good for shows like this and bad for prediction. <laughs> I think there's almost no chance he'll be replaced. Um, I mean, look, if he decides one morning he can't do it, like he is the president of the United States and he can't do it, and history has weighed heavily on this guy. He's been in national politics since 1973, um, and Johnson resigned, I believe, or announced his lack of effort to run for re-election in March of 68. So it's not impossible, but it's just really, really, really late. It's very, very clear that Biden wants to run. And it's not even particularly clear, in my opinion, uh, that Biden isn't the actual best candidate. He's the incumbent president. Um, and for a lot of people, uh, the sort of you know fixture of a moderate old white guy um, is actually comforting uh, if they nominate somebody who is seen as uh, for the left or more woke or younger. Um, it, they might not be able to hold their you know fairly narrow coalition together. Ezra Klein's uh, controversial on the left uh, or among liberals take is not that Joe Biden isn't fit to be president, but that he was is fit to is unfit to run a campaign. Basically saying that yes, we have to acknowledge that there is a decline here. I, I feel sorry for the guy, but it doesn't seem like it's actually affected his leadership. No one can point to any decisions that would have been made differently if he were, say, the more sprightly version of himself from four or ten years ago. But that. Quite obviously, what is required of you in a campaign to go out, do glad handing, to make speeches, to participate in debates, um, to show uh, a, a level of vigor that inspires the American public, that is where he's failing. So I wonder if you sort of agree with that take or are liberals trying to kind of uh, split the baby on saying, oh, it's really not that you should be concerned that he's president, just that he can't run for president? I mean, it's not like this is good. Um, we're getting into a point, this is not a unique observation, I think Nate Silver made it yesterday, that we're getting into a point where it could be just rational for Biden effectively not to even try to run, yet appear on the ballot. That campaigning would become a negative asset. But there's no there's no law that you have to appear in rallies. There's no law that you have to go to events. There's no law that you have to go to debates. Um, he could just try to be the non-Trump person on the, the ballot. That's a, I think that's you know effectively a perfectly rational uh, strategy. Um, and it, it might be actually a more prudent one than trying to run Harris or, I mean, there's, there's so much ink spilled on Gavin Newsom, but do they really want to uh, reverse it, uh, make it a referendum on California and California's management under Newsom? I'm not so sure that that's a, a, such a clean trade.
Hmm. So the polls currently show Trump up, I think, nine points. That's what we covered in our top of our show. Um, ahead in many of the swing states, um, RFK Jr. having a, a, a splash as the kind of third man in the race. Um, you know, there there was a long time uh, kind of thinking among some pundits that well, it would it, the race will get closer once people once Trump is very clearly the nominee. People hear from him more often. He starts you know reminding your swing voters, your moderate voters, what they dislike about him, and Biden will get some kind of boost. That certainly hasn't happened yet. Even though I'd say it's pretty clear Trump is going to be the nominee, unless there's some really exceptional legal circumstances. Um, at this point in the race, the polls do have some predictive power, and they show Biden certainly behind. Um, do you think, is this going to be like a low turnout election where everyone is, you know, so dissatisfied with the candidates they have before them, but, but Trump is on pace, if we're believing the polls, to, to pull that out? Is for his, his people are less dissatisfied than Biden's people. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't think it's going to be a particularly low turnout election. American federal elections have had higher turnout turnout in the last 10 years than I believe than they did in the 2000s. Go back and look at the 2004 turnout. It was it was it was closer to 50 percent. I believe we're well over 60 percent now. I don't expect us to get much lower than that. Maybe it's a little lower than 2020 or 2016, but I'm not sure it particularly matters. Um, look, I'm not sanguine on this. I think a lot could change between you know February 21st and uh, November, whatever. Um, but I think people are actually kind of overrating the amount that which which could change. I think we all, all have sort of PTSD from COVID. Um, we are all kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. I think, look, the polls are directionally true. Like uh, they're not they're not uh, a hard science, but like people look at them for a reason. We're talking about them for a reason. Trump's ahead. Trump's never been in this kind of polling position ever. Right. He, he was down in 16 to Hillary. He was down more to Biden. Uh, there ended up being a polling error in Trump's favor in both 16 and 20 and 16 and made of the president. Um, Trump has, a, you know, a, has the most commanding lead he's had as a as a Republican presidential candidate in these polls. I think they're directionally true. I think he's favored. We keep talking about age, but it does seem like it's much more about uh, his apparent cognitive fitness than it is about a particular number. There are other old folks in Congress. Uh, Donald Trump, liberals often point out, is really very similar in age to Joe Biden. Bernie Sanders is old, but does not seem to be facing some of the same challenges that Joe Biden is facing. Uh, given that this may be not an issue of chronology, but mental fitness, what do you make of suggestions like the one by Katie Porter that there do need to be some sort of age terms on candidates and other elected officials? Uh, I mean, I don't agree. I don't think we need to create more rules. I mean, I think that's a sort of parody of a sort of center-left democratic solution, just make out of the law to solve something. I think if, if Americans think that Biden is disqualified from the role based on his age, they should vote him out. Um, that's that's my view. Um, I think people obviously age differently. Uh, to comment on the three people that you named, um, I mean, Trump is obviously like a super weird guy. It's like strange diet. Doesn't really exercise. He's under more pressure he, he, than ever before. He seems to thrive under that pressure. Um, Sanders. I mean, I think some of it is that Sanders kind of has the same stock and trade stump speech that he always has, and so it's a little easier. And then Biden has to change his opinions and be a Machiavellian on everything, and so I think that's gets harder to do in your ninth decade. I don't know. I I, th I do think there are substantive issues there. I do think that Trump is less cognitively 
frail than Biden. Um, and obviously, I say that as someone who's not ideologically aligned with him. And I think that Bernie Sanders, he was recently um, got, went viral in a clip where he was really pressured on his views on Gaza, uh, and then I, I think uh, Ireland, and is nimble, saying things that I don't agree with, but is nimble and able to follow the thread of the conversation, doesn't seem to have the same word-finding problems that Biden has experienced. People like Noam Chomsky are very old and seems to still be very engaged. So I, I do think that right. there are real differences here, but I, I do tend to agree with you that I'm not sure that um, I would focus on limiting age as much as I would have an interest in term term limits, um, because I think that the entrenched nature of our political system is more important than the actual um, frailty of some members of that system. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really interesting conversation. Of course. Thanks for having me. out of New York allows minors in the state to consent to certain medical services without asking for parental consent, raising the ire of, Mary, of many parents' rights advocates. New York Assembly Bill A6761 allows doctors to provide certain medical, dental, hospital services, and immunizations without that parental consent. The bill states that anyone who comprehends the need for nature of and the reasonability, reasonable foreseeability, uh, sorry, reasonably foreseeable risks and benefits involved in any alternatives may give effective consent to such services for themselves and the consent of no other person shall be necessary. Now, the part that was excluded from the coverage of this um, is that it's specifically in the bill, it, it cuts out the first word of the one sentence of the one sentence bill, which is that it's for homeless use. So the idea is I think people who don't have mm -hmm. anyone to consent for them, can they say, yes, uh, I broke my arm and I need surgery, yes, I need a vaccine, whatever, and not be precluded from necessary medical treatment simply because there is no guardian around that has custody over them. Yeah, in that case, I think obviously I wouldn't have any problem with someone not needing permission for a guardian or a parental figure that does not exist. Um, I don't, you know, particularly want, I, you know, I want to let people make their own medical decisions. I mean, there is, you know, an issue for, in the case where a underage person, a child, wants to consent to some medical thing or an immunization and the parents don't, you know, what should be done. This is just That's like a legitimate uh, disagreement and it's a hard question to ask. You know, I, I tend to think, again, I don't care if, if the child wants something and the parents are okay with it and a doctor wants to prescribe it or do it or whatever it is, it's really none of my business. I don't care. Um, when there's a conflict among one of those three entities, um, look, there's just no easy way to answer this, frankly. Yeah, I mean, there have been a number of Can't cases <laughs> that have divided the public along very mixed ideological lines. Yeah. There were stories about um, parents who had, because of their religious beliefs or certain health practices, feeding their kids diets that weren't medically indicated that made the kids sick or not wanting to have certain medical interventions because they didn't believe in traditional medicine and children have gotten sick and perished because of some of these parental choices. So obviously it's not the case that every parental choice is a good one. Of course, this cuts the other way when we're talking about issues related to trans rights where so many conservatives are frustrated about what they perceive to be not medically inter indicated interventions on the behalf of the child where parents think and the child obviously thinks that their mental health would be benefited from um, some of these interventions. Right. I've also um, written about research edited in my role at Reason Magazine, so many um, CPS cases that have made me very wary of um, getting the state more involved in parenting, even frankly in cases where the parents are 
not very good or, or, or they're overworked because they're low income and they have to work many jobs and they have too many children and it's a bad situation. Even when kids are not getting ideal care or there is some abuse, the intervention of CPS often makes the situation sure. so much worse. Um, and also I've seen you know, tons of cases where there's so many for you know, medical reasons. Some doctor says or that like the child abuse specialist gets called and says that a young kid was abused. That it, it's, it's a it's total pseudoscience. Um, sure. And people have lost their kids for utterly fanciful, made up reasons. It happens all the time. It's really scary stuff. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of critique of the of CPS that I think is very legitimate. Um, and particularly people I know in the black community who feel like the program is weaponized in particular against black families uh, in separating kids from their parents. So I, the I know that- The statistics on that are insane. It's like yeah. one in four black families are visited by CPS. Yeah, it's, it's, a, crazy. it's a, it's a, it's a real issue yeah. um, that I heard about, frankly, from constituents on the campaign trail when I was working for Bernie Sanders back in 2020. Um, that's a real thing. So this is an interesting question about whether or not, you know, I'm not exactly sure what happens to kids without guardians when they do need a medical intervention. Is it that they fall into state custody? Is that a hurdle that takes time and causes them to have medical delays that aren't good for their mm -hmm. outcomes? Is it requiring there to be more of a custodial relationship between the kid and the parent that is maybe advised, given what we've just talked about, and having a law that allowed for a simple treatment without that relationship being established or reestablished, is that a boon? I don't know. But it's the, yeah. the reason this came to my attention is because there are people who are concerned this will be read more broadly and allow any kid, regardless of circumstances, even though that's not what the short, brief language of the proposed bill says, but are afraid that this is some sign that there is a loosening of um, parental inclusion in decisions that yeah. affect a child. I mean, you in the in the comments, viewers, tell us what you think about this. Like, imagine a situation where uh, parents want their, maybe their teenager, want their parents to get the COVID vaccine. The teenager, maybe they've watched our show, seen some <laughs> of our guests. They're a little, little bit worried about whether it's necessary and the side effects and they don't want to do it. Should should they be compelled, you know, from a parent's rights perspective, should they be compelled to have the kid do it? I don't know. And once you answer question. that question, ask yourself the reverse yeah. question. Right. If a kid really wants to get vaccinated and their parents, because they watch this show or others, decide that they don't want to get their kid vaccinated, should, should they be able they to do be, it? Yeah. Yeah, it's a hard question to answer. Uh, also, though, the American Red Cross now asking blood donors if they've ever received the COVID-19 vaccine and instructing those who answered yes to call a number to determine whether they're still eligible to donate blood. So this appeared online uh, the other day, and some were seeing it as an admission. There's something wrong with the vaccines, including RFK Jr., of course, presidential candidate, who commented on X, the propaganda is beginning to unravel. However, a community note under this initial post uh, provided some pushback. The Red Cross apparently asked this question to make sure you haven't received a self-replicating vaccine. And if you have, there's a two-week wait. Now, most COVID vaccines are not self-replicating, do not require a waiting period. I thought this was all pretty unclear, so I actually just like went to the Red Cross website to check. They say that it seems like the overwhelming majority of people who got COVID vaccines don't need to wait or defer or do anything. Um, that self, whatever the the, the yeah. term was is a little confusing, but it, it, basically this means uh, R&R, Moderna, uh, Pfizer, even uh, J&J here, AstraZeneca, um, all of those vaccines. If you were vaccinated with one of those, you don't have to wait. You can give blood. If you re received it from a from a vaccine not listed there, you or you or I guess you don't know your vac what vaccine you received, then you should wait two weeks before giving blood. So it's not quite the uh, 
you know, the mask off, the vaccines yeah. are killing people, they, your blood yeah. is tainted, we don't want it, I mean, that I also, think some people were making it out to be. It's also true that the Red Cross, the blood donation is carried out with an abundance of caution given mistakes that were made in the past. Um, I mean, many, many um, LGBT advocates are still frustrated that there are these prohibitions against um, giving blood if you've had gay sex in the recent however many, like, year, basically, even though now the, they the test testing, the blood, they, they're tested anyway. Obviously, there are people who aren't gay that can have HIV. Like, it, it does seem, it's, a, it's, a, it's an anachronistic rule from a different time. Um, that is perhaps continuing on a certain kind of prejudice, but those rules w were put into a, an effect because there was there were really terrible mistakes that were made um, sure. in decades past, and it does seem like these kind of rules they could indicate, oh my gosh, is there a real problem with this uh, type of vaccine, or it could just indicate that this is a very cautious area of medicine, and they're just going above and beyond. Makes sense. All right, that does it for us for today. Tomorrow, we'll be back with more Rising. Please tune in then. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who like to listen while you're on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you later. Thank you.